0: Welcome to the HBMN Podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health Via Modern
1: Nutrition. Coming up in this episode, Zach Bitter,
0: because, like, you know, you see this sometimes where people like, well, if you're going to do a ketogenic diet and make it work, you've got to be strict. And you got to be strict 100% of the time. And that may be true if you're using it for like what we were chatting a bit about before for therapeutic reasons for something like epileptic seizures, type 2 diabetes and all that sort of stuff. But when we're talking about athletes who are metabolically healthy, I think there's some flexibility there. And it becomes less of a uh, black and white, all fat or all carb and more of a sliding scale where like how far do you want to slide that? scale over towards fat, or how far do you want to slide it over towards carbohydrate? So I I like to say like, I'm aiming to be as fat adapted as I need to for the event I'm training for, versus as fat adapted as I possibly can get. Jeff, take it away.
1: Zach, really great to have you on the HV Men podcast. And before we get started, I need to congratulate you on setting two world records recently. So you have the fastest 100 miler, and you also, I think on that same attempt, basically did the longest distance ever covered in 12 hours. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe those are two (laughs) accomplishments. Again, very, very insane level of of, of performance endurance there.
0: Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on. And thanks for the kind words too. But yeah, where the world record was at and where I have it now, it's kind of in a unique spot where you can kind of double dip and go for the 100 mile and then if you have any bit of legs left, it behooves you to stay out there and, and see what you can do for 12 hours. So it's an interesting kind of setup.
1: Yeah. And then to give our listeners a sense of the speed and the distance you're covering, you're averaging, I believe, like right around six minutes a mile, maybe even less than that over that 100 mile run.
0: Yeah, it's uh it came out to, I think, just under 648 per mile was okay. the average pace for the 100
1: mile set, set of it. And I think most people might be able to run half a mile at a seven minute pace, (laughs) maybe a mile if you're relatively fit. And then doing that for a hundred times in a row or over 12 hours is quite an accomplishment.
0: Yeah, it is kind of interesting. I think people don't always, at least the the general running community, the ultra running community can kind of run the numbers. They kind of have an idea of what a hundred miles is and stuff. Most people who are running your traditional distances, you know, they don't always think like, well, what is an 11.19 for 100 miles? But when you break it down as kind of the pace per mile, or it was 20 minutes, some high seconds, 5Ks, like 32 of them in a row, or like four marathons at 2.58, that's when they can kind of start to connect the dots a little bit in terms of like, kind of what the effort was, I guess.
1: Yeah, I'm especially excited to talk with you because I think you cover and can speak highly towards a couple of key topics that we talk about on the program here. One is low-carb, high-fat nutrition, and what that means in terms of metabolic health, but also in terms of performance. And I would say the other big topic that we like to cover is high-end human performance. How do we enhance ourselves? And and I think from a accomplishment perspective, being the best in the world at something definitely surpasses that mark there. Perhaps the way to get started here is... How does one decide to be the fastest 100-miler in the
0: world? (laughs) It's funny because I think you end up in that position at some point. You don't necessarily plan for it. But for me, I got into running as early as in middle school. It was my first kind of exposure to endurance events in general. And that was more or less just because I realized fairly quickly that I could be kind of near the front if I ran distance or I could be near the back if I ran sprints. So as a middle school-aged boy, you kind of gravitate towards what your interests are, which tend to be what you're better at. So I had a little bit of a, a, maybe a nudge in that direction from those experiences. And then, and you know, in high school and college, I started getting more and more interested in the sport as a whole. And by the end of my college experience, I started getting really interested in just kind of the training methodology and like the hows and the whys, like rather than just going for a run or doing a workout because the coach said, do this workout, like trying to figure out why would we do that workout then? And why do we put this here? And where does recovery fit into the equation, and all that sort of stuff. So one of the biggest takeaways I had during my college running experience was that my favorite workout of the week was the long run. So after college, when I kind of was removed from some of that structure of the team atmosphere and the coach and all that stuff, I started kind of just gravitating to doing more of the stuff I liked versus what I felt like I had to do to meet peak potential in a specific event.
1: Yeah, so what was your event in college?
0: I did mostly like 5K, in 10k for track and then 8k for cross country. So relatively short.
1: So this is not, you are not a marathoner in college.
0: No, you can do marathon in like a subset of college sports, but not necessarily in like your traditional division three, division two, division one programs. Mm -hmm. Typically don't go past 10 kilometers, at least not yet anyway. But that's an interesting discussion point too, because I think it kind of sets the stage for like where American distance runners end up in the marathon versus other countries where they sometimes start much earlier targeting that distance. But, but yeah, you know, mostly 5k, 10k stuff in college. And then after college, I explored kind of longer distance running longer, longer distance maybe. And it just was a logical, if you can call it logical, a logical move was to go into ultra running eventually. So it's kind
1: of how I got into that. Presume that you racking up distance and you realize, okay, mm-hmm. I'm like a decent marathon runner. Okay, this is handleable. I want to do a, a 50k. I want to do a 100k. Okay, let's do 100. Miles. What were some of the key benchmarks or checkpoints as you went on to be a world class ultra runner?
0: After college, I kind of focused it on just building up my aerobic base, more or less, or my volume. I got intrigued by kind of a high mileage. Training plan, if you want to call it a plan. At first, it was just doing a lot of like kind of moderately low intensity runs at a high volume. And just to kind of keep interest, I would jump in marathons or put marathons on the schedule. But I never really did what I would consider a well structured marathon buildup where I went through the full phases of training in a way that I would be really faithful in the approach producing my fastest potential time. But I did a few of those before I jumped to my first ultra marathon and then have done them since then as kind of long, hard workouts in preparation for longer ultra marathons. But I would say relative to my college experience, you know, the marathon seemed a lot more interesting to me than say like the 5k or the 10k. And that definitely kind of bridged the gap between those traditional collegiate distances, and then doing my first ultra marathon, which was actually a 50 miler. So I've done some 50 Ks as well, but I I actually did the 50 miler first. And I lived in Wisconsin at the time. And I kind of stumbled upon the fact that there was actually a 50 miler in the state. I had no clue at the time. And when I saw that, I was like, well, my first thought was, I think I was like 24 at the time. And my first thought was, well, I'll do this one just to see what it's like, but then I probably won't do another one until I'm like 30. (laughs) And I'm 33 now, just so your listeners know. But but yeah, so then I I did that and I thought that was such an interesting experience. By that same time next year, I was kind of all in and I was starting to do training for ultra marathons specifically and kind of being a little more specific about my training and periodizing things a little more versus just going out there and running a long amount every day or
1: whenever I felt good enough to do that. When did you realize that, hey, like I'm, not just like a serious amateur pseudo professional long distance runner. Hey, I could be the world's best.
0: It took me a little bit of time probably to realize the depth that there was in ultra marathon running in terms of just the variety of events you could do. My introduction in was just trails. And I guess my thought naively as it may have been was that like, you know, ultra marathons are just more or less done on the trails for the most part. And in North America, that's a pretty big majority of the ultra marathon running, which is interesting because when you look at the history of the sport in North America, it actually was the opposite back. For if you go back further, the road and the flatter stuff got a lot of momentum. The trail was this really tiny, almost unheard of community. So, like the Hard
1: One Hundred. Yeah, like the Western states and those those type of events. So I think probably if folks have listened to David Goggins or. Jeff Mm -hmm. Browning, who we work with, does a lot of those like trail races. So I guess like that Mm -hmm. might have been one route, but it sounded like in the history of the sport, it used to be more flat and track based. Mm -hmm. And there's some resurgence of interest around the trail and road running.
0: Yeah. And you can even go back into, I think, the late 1800s. They would do like six-day events and timed events in Madison Square Garden. And I think it actually got fairly popular for a while where they'd have a lot of people out there. And there was a whole lot of other stuff going on. It was almost like a circus. (laughs) And they would be betting on runners and things like that. So it was kind of interesting to see some of that stuff. But for me, it was I kind of stumbled upon... This idea or this principle of specificity of training. And when you get into like distances as long as 100 miles, terrain and environment and weather play a huge role for that specificity because if you're better prepared for a specific weather or a specific terrain, it just compounds itself over the course of 100 miles. I, you know, I jumped into some flatter road type ultra marathons near the end of 2013. And, uh, upon that kind of introduced me into this event in Phoenix called the Desert Solstice Track Invitational. So the race directors for that actually reached out to me and asked if I wanted to come do it at the end of 2013. And I was interested because I'd actually just saw that there's a guy named John Olson who had, at that point, had just broke the American record for 100 miles and he was also the first American to go under 12 hours for 100 miles. So I had just done a road 50 miler, a few weeks earlier and ran five hours and 12 minutes for that one and my thought was if I can do 50 in 512 I can probably go through 50 during a hundred miler in 545 and then hold on for dear life and squeak under John Olson's time yeah so that was kind of my goal on that day and I ended up running 11 hours and 47 minutes and took about 12 minutes off his time and that's what kind of got me really interested in like well, how fast can I run 100 miles when I'm really kind of hyper-focused on peaking for that specifically?
1: So you weren't even training for world-class, world-record-level performance, but like you kind of sides it up. and You're like, hey, this is within my capacity. If I just kind of Mm -hmm. go for it, I could be close. And you you just rolled into it, and then you just started (laughs) doing it.
0: Yeah, it was actually funny. I was actually in really good shape that year because I was training. I'd won the Tussie Mountainback 50-mile, which is the road 50-mile championships the prior year in 2012. So my plan that half the year was to go back and try to win it again. And I went back and I ran a faster time on a slightly more difficult course, but I lost first place and got second by about four minutes to a guy named Matt Flaherty, who's a solid runner himself. So I was kind of had this like mixed emotions about it where it was like, okay, I, I ran faster than I did last year. I went under the previous course record, but... I was second place instead of first place, so I didn't really know how to feel about that. But then the race that I ran the 512 at was actually like 13 days later. I just kind of jumped into it randomly. And that's when I think I kind of connected the dots as to like my training had gotten me very, very prepared for like flat road or flat track type stuff and that if I were really gonna maximize my performance, it would benefit me to go to a race like that so it matched my training. And some of that happened just because my roommate at the time was one of my old college friends and teammates, and he was training for a marathon. So we would do some speed workouts together and stuff. So I got in pretty good shape just from running a lot with him and doing some of that stuff. And that kind of got me to that race in 2013. And I, maybe I accidentally put together a really good training block.
1: <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> I want to talk about nutrition a little bit, but perhaps to give folks who have a little bit of amateur running experience like myself, what does a typical volume per week look like? I mean, you're doing like 100 miles a week or I have no idea how to train for a 100 miler. I mean, you see so many, so much variety.
0: You can see people with what I would consider relatively low volume approaches to it. Yeah. Um, I personally like a higher volume approach. So if you look at just my running after I got out of college, or for the last decade or so, I basically have averaged about 100 miles a week. I usually range between 5,000 and 5,500 miles in a year's time. So it can be a little above that sometimes, or right at it, or a little below it, but it comes out to about that 100 miles a week on average. And within that, you know, you have phases of the year where you're doing lasts, and phases where you're ramping up. So like when I peaked up for this last 100-mile, 12-hour effort, my kind of key training phase was this four-week block where I had three buildup weeks and a deload week. And a deload week is just where you kind of reduce volume and intensity. And that was like about 130 miles, 150 miles, a 75 mile a week, and then another 150 mile week. And that's kind of what a peak training block would look like when I'm really getting in a good spot in training and both physically and mentally really motivated to go after something.
1: And then internally within that week, are you doing a couple long 20, 30 milers and doing Three, four, five, ten 10 milers? How are you splitting up the volume?
0: Yeah, I'm usually backloading it a little bit to that Saturday, Sunday, and doing at least kind of a relatively long run on one of those two days, and then a longer long run on the other. So I had a couple of weekends where it was like a 2030. I had another weekend, I think that was a 28 and a 27. And I'm trying to specify it as close to the course too. So being that this last one was on a track, I was just doing it on this like 400 meter dirt track kind of near my house. (laughs) (laughs) And it is interesting because I live in Phoenix, Arizona. So, you know, we were kind of still in the thick of summer. So a lot of those runs were ending above a hundred degrees and it's both good and bad. I think like you're dealing with the monotony of running around a 400 meter loop, but when it's that hot, it's not the end of the world, I think, because then you can just have your cooler sitting there and you can grab more water and cool off. You have like ice and stuff right there for you. So, it makes it a little easier logistically, at least.
1: You planted a seed there, which is the mental game of doing such a long endurance sport. And I think that's something that I think about a lot, the mental state, the mental game of doing something like this. So, let's plant a seed there to talk about that. But before that, I want to talk about nutrition. So, we have a good understanding of Okay. Your trajectory as a runner, as you're scaling up the volume and realizing, Hey, I have a potential to be the world's best at these types of, you know, 100 mile range races. But on the nutrition side, it's quite interesting because probably as you were being taught and coached through college, the dogma is carb load, carb load, you know, shoot sugar gels and carbohydrate gels as you're doing these races. And you're well known to be primarily fueling with a ketogenic or low carb, high fat protocol. Can you talk us through how, why did you stumble upon some of the ketogenic principles and and how you started experimenting?
0: My exposure to it was almost accidental, but very well timed when I look back at it. I first got interested about eight years ago. And one of the reasons I even found out about it was when I was doing some of my training, I started Feeling a little guilty about how many hours I was spending out there running, and I thought, like, "Well, how, how can I add to that experience?" So I started listening to podcasts mm. while I was running, so I could at least learn while I'm doing it. Not feel like I was just spending, you know, 20 hours a week sometimes running and not having anything else to report back about. <laughs> yeah, and that kind of gave me the idea of like that even existed a ketogenic diet or a high fat, low carb diet. And ironically enough, around that same time. I noticed that when I was doing my high-level training in racing relatively frequently, it was just very difficult to manage sleep, manage energy levels for the course of the day. And those were kind of red flags to me in the sense that, you know, I'm in my mid-20s. I'm supposed to be like as strong as I am in my life. And here I am sleeping worse than I did when I was younger. I was on a roller coaster energy-wise when I was at work. And you're just kind of tied to that nutrition. You'd want to You'd be eating basically all day long to sustain a big training load and work and all that stuff, and it just didn't seem sustainable to me. So I was at a bit of a crossroads because I knew that the training had a role in that. Like I could have probably gotten away with my nutritional plan had I not been running as much as I was. Yep. But I was enjoying that. Like I, it, I wasn't miserable running and I wasn't miserable racing, so I was hesitant to kind of give up on that component right away without exploring some other options. So, the other logical option to me was, you know, let's see if I can manipulate my diet a bit and deviate away from what I would consider a very well formulated high carbohydrate diet. I wasn't eating like a bunch of junk food or anything like that. It was very much what you'd expect someone who's interested in nutrition and reading the literature on sports nutrition for endurance athletes that 60, 70% of your intake coming from carbohydrates, you know, the fruits, vegetables, whole grains, that sort of stuff. And basically what I did then is when I got to the end of my season that year, I had a little bit of an opportunity where I didn't have any real focused training for about a month. So I decided I'm gonna try this now and kind of see how I feel and if worst case scenario it doesn't work and I just deviate back and at least it's not interrupting like a big block of training I'm doing preparing for a race Yep. so the biggest eye-opening thing to me was once I got going into it a couple of weeks into it, I started sleeping through the night again like so instead of, you know, waking up three, four, five times a night to use the bathroom, or waking up wide awake and having to like just restlessly lay there for thirty minutes before I fall back asleep. I'd just like in high school and college, I'd go to bed, and basically sleep through the night, wake up eight, nine hours later. So that was kind of a really big indicator to me that there's something to that, or there's something in the way my nutrition was behaving with my body before and within the context of a high fat low carb diet
1: and it sounds like you also pretty rapidly keto adapted right Because i think a lot of people that are transitioning Mm -hmm. from a more of a carbohydrate driven metabolism to more of a fat driven metabolism they'll have like the keto flu they'll have some lower performance or restlessness but this might be due to the fact that you probably were dipping into a ketotic state as you're doing these long races and you're maybe just a little bit more fat adapted from Mm -hmm. your exercise load, that made it easier to transition. I'm just curious in terms of yeah. your, your your transition there.
0: You can definitely move your level of fat adaptation just through training. The reason that that's not an excuse, in my opinion, would be you can move the needle a little bit with that. And there's probably individuals other can move the needle quite a bit with that, but it's not nearly as much as you can move the needle when you're treating your nutrition with it as well. And we yeah. saw that. The faster study was Volick. yes, 2014. Yeah. And what they did, and the thing, reason I find it interesting is they took a 10-person high-fat cohort and a 10-person high-carb cohort, and they made sure the, the both of the groups were highly trained athletes. So, we could basically assume that they had maximized their ability to improve fat oxidation through training. Like, none of these guys were off the couch. None of these guys were unfit. Yeah. So, when they did the study, like, the high-fat cohort was burning well above textbook levels before that you'd look in the textbooks and you'd be like if you're a freak you might burn 0.9 or maybe 1.0 grams per minute of fat whereas I think I produced like 1.56 grams per minute or something like that. And I wasn't the highest. There's guys who are in the 1.8 range even. So you're looking at like a 50% improvement in that.
1: You're a subject in that study. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's super cool. I got confused with the NOVA study versus the FASTER study. But yes, a lot of people cite that study. So that's cool. I didn't know that you were a subject. Very interesting.
0: At that point, I was convinced enough that what i was doing was working for me at least so to get kind of the tangible numbers to say like okay this is what's happening was useful for me and the other thing that i found really useful was it also kind of showed me that there is a bit of wiggle room there it's not all black and white because you know you see this sometimes where people's like well if you're going to do a ketogenic diet and make it work you've got to be strict and you got to be strict 100 percent of the time And that may be true if you're using it for what we were chatting a bit about before for therapeutic reasons for something like epileptic seizures, type two diabetes and all that sort of stuff. But when we're talking about athletes who are metabolically healthy, I think there's some flexibility there and it becomes less of a black and white, all fat or all carb and more of a sliding scale where like, how far do you want to slide that scale over towards fat or how far do you want to slide it over towards carbohydrate? So I like to say like, I'm, aiming to be as fat adapted as I need to for the event I'm training for versus as fat adapted as I possibly can get. I mean, there was a washout period where they wanted us to make sure we were at 10% or lower carbohydrate intake, which isn't too difficult because that's about what I average over the course of the year when you figure in my lowest carb intakes and my highest carb intakes combined. But I knew like in the two years before that, I was doing phases of training where I would flex my carbohydrates up to maybe around 20% or even sometimes a little over that if it was a really big session. So knowing that I was able to do that and still be fat adapted to the rate I was, was encouraging for me that I was kind of on the right path. And it just gave me a little bit of info into kind of like how I can kind of structure things going forward. So yeah, that kind of highlights, I guess, the rest of that story a bit. You know, I did that kind of four week of an introduction phase where I was really strict. And I did notice a little bit of a performance dip in, the, in those first four weeks, but it was like a non-factor because I was just running basically just some off-season miles more or less. And it was interesting though, because like I'd go out for a run and I'd be like, okay, this feels like a pace that I would be running like a seven minute mile at. And then I would look at the watch at the end. It's like, it turns out I was running an 830 pace or something like that. <laughs> but after about a month, and I had some runs in the middle of that too that were right on point. So it wasn't even like an everyday thing. But after about four weeks, that basically normalized. So then just became a puzzle to solve that was like, okay, now what happens if I stay that low all the time when I reintroduce some real specific sessions that are more short interval VO2 max based or threshold running type paces? And that's when I started to kind of see where there was maybe a little bit of wiggle room for someone training as hard as I am or maybe you could say a lifestyle component where the whole like kind of 30, 50 grams a day is more applicable for someone who's leading a more traditional lifestyle, or they're going to the gym a few times a week, or they're, you know, dealing with something therapeutic versus someone who's a highly trained endurance athlete. I think that window shifts closer to like maybe 100, 150 grams a day. And then you can also, I'll flex up above that sometimes too, but I'm usually balancing it out with easier recovery days where I don't need it. And And the way I try to describe to people who are kind of new to it and are trying to wrap their heads around the whole thing is I say, like, just think of the normal food pyramid, like the macronutrient ratios you're likely going to get from something like that, and then just kind of flip it on its head. So I wouldn't follow a high carb diet and eliminate fat altogether. But if I'm following a high carb diet by default, I'm going to have to be eating relatively modest amounts of carbohydrates, modest amounts of protein, and then that foundation is in fat. And I think that makes a ton of sense when we're talking about events that are 100 miles in duration because your race pace intensity is very low relative to you know, some of those faster workouts right. that are going to be maybe more specific to like a 3K or a 5K distance.
1: Or you're not throwing up weights, you're not doing like a CrossFit, a high intensity mm-hmm. interval training type of an exercise or competition. I think you articulate the nuance quite well and something that as referenced, something that I've wanted to just clarify within the community because I think within like the nutrition Twitter space, I think people are very dogmatic like okay, we think carbs are evil, like (laughs) don't eat anything or like fat is evil, you're going to get a heart attack if you just eat a lot of fat and I think you put it quite nicely, for folks with metabolic syndrome, they are actually quite metabolically inflexible so they Mm -hmm. likely do need to be more strict with their macro ratios. Okay, you want to constrain more tightly but as you are going towards a healthier side and have metabolic flexibility Well, your system literally can handle different substrates just as efficiently. And then for certain types of performance attributes, you want availability of all the different pros and cons of each substrate for what you're doing. And I think especially for a sporting context, well, sometimes you do want a little bit higher carbohydrate. You do want to maximize your glycogen repletion after a a long workout. And that's where you might want to consider adding a little bit more carbohydrate.
0: Yeah. One of the things I find really interesting that I've kind of learned... Along the way, too, is it seems like there's no more nuance or more thought in kind of the time between sessions. So, if I go intense enough that my body essentially fails before my fuel substrate fails, then I just can't drive energy demand high enough to deplete my muscle glycogens or my muscle glycogen and liver glycogen. So In a scenario like that where you're likely not going to come back and do another session like that until the next day or maybe even further, there's plenty of time to replenish the smaller – relatively smaller amounts of lost glycogen through fats and proteins versus a training plan like mine where I might go out in the morning into two hours with like 30 minutes at threshold – And then four or five hours later, go to the gym and do some strength work and maybe an easy second jog or something like that. So like that window is so tight between sessions, that volume is so high, you're just not giving yourself quite enough time. It's this weird balance where the intensity is just high enough that you can start dipping into your glycogen stores in a significant way, but just low enough that you can do loads and loads of it. It's really kind of a gray area, I think. And it's an area where Sometimes I question, are humans really supposed to be doing this or not?
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I think what you're describing is really the future of sport performance. You have to think about the actual physical training and technique in conjunction with your nutrition load, right? Like that's the one-two punch. You're exerting energy through your exercise. You're intaking energy through your consumption. And I think I would say in the previous paradigm of sport, you think about nutrition off to the side. and You think about your training off to the side, mm-hmm. right? You might cycle your training. I mean, maybe if you're not sophisticated, you don't really cycle your nutrition. But I think where more and more sophisticated athletes, and it sounds like you're very much sort of at the cutting edge here, you very much integrate how you think about your energy intake against your training load, and you'll periodize both synergistically.
0: Yeah, and it makes sense when you kind of just scale it down to what it is, where, you know, my lifestyle as an extreme endurance athlete varies significantly depending on kind of where I am during the season or the year so for me to plug and play a very exact nutrition plan day in and day out every day of the year wouldn't make as much sense as having it kind of flow like you said with the plan itself so if you're doing periodized training and you're doing significant build-ups and then significant recovery phases and things like that I think There's a lot more you can do from a variability standpoint when it comes to both the macronutrients as well as just the general energy intake.
1: So maybe I think my conclusion from this thread here is that I understand why some people on on Twitter or social media are pretty dogmatic around, you know, keto is good. And I think you probably need that counterswing to pull Mm -hmm. people away from the current FDA food pyramid or USDA food pyramid where it's like, you know, eat 70% of your calories from carbs. And I think there's a yeah. good reason why you're seeing obesity, metabolic syndrome rise, because you're you're feeding a lot of people, a lot of people process refined car- carbohydrates. So I think there is some counterbalance needed to say, hey, no, fats could be useful. Carbs are not necessarily great. But I think once you pass that initial, I would say like hard reshift in thinking then I think you can potentially start reintroducing some nuance. So folks who are listening to the program that are conserving low carb, high fat or a ketogenic diet for therapeutic or weight management or body composition or metabolic syndrome use cases, you probably need to be strict because you need to hard shift and reset your metabolism. But mm-hmm. as you get back on the healthier track and start looking at doing things like what Zach is doing here, trying to win 100-mile races, then you can get a little bit more nuance, reintroducing carbs strategically, which I think is important just to say that there's like a couple of different levels of the conversation. We each are at different stages of where we are in our metabolic health, and we need to engage at the right level before saying, hey, I want to do what Zach's doing, but I'm not training like what Zach's doing.
0: It's kind of funny because you see that type of mentality in a lot of different areas in life, too. and. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something I think people need to be aware of where when I look at endurance training too, you do something that generates a little bit of awareness, whether that's you know something like what I did or even just in your local community. Maybe you have a group of friends and you just ran a 5K or you lost 20 pounds that you needed to lose and you see your friends see that and they're like, okay, well, what they're doing is working. I need to do exactly what they're doing. And really it's like, well, you need to back up and look at what were they doing to get to where they are and make sure you're doing all those initial steps too along the way. Yep. Even for me, when I'm working with folks who are interested in a kind of a high fat, low carb or ketogenic style diet, we're looking at a lot of different variables, even as far down as to, well, how important is optimal race performance to you versus just your general well-being and things like that and your general interests and in what you want to be eating. And a lot of times even with the people looking for pure performance, we're gonna spend a good month or four to six weeks even going pretty strict keto in the beginning to get a kind of reset that metabolic switch a little bit so it's just a little bit faster maybe to kind of turn that switch over. And then we can always bring the carbs back. The body seems to be very efficient at turning back to carbohydrates if you do decide to reintroduce them. So yeah. to me, that's a lot less of an issue.
1: Yeah, I think that's like where I think we should all should be optimistic. I mean, doing N equals one experience with myself, looking at facet insulin, facet glucose, you don't need to be doing a ketogenic diet for a year to see pretty mm-hmm. profound biomarker changes, right? And it sounds like, I don't know in terms of fat oxidation, how quickly can you ramp from 0.5 grams per minute so you know something to your rate of like 1.5 grams per minute maybe you do need to be keto and training a lot to get to that kind of level of fat oxidation but i'm sure you can go from 0.5 to 0.7 relatively quickly if you mm-hmm. just do a little bit of faster training and reduce carbohydrate intake
0: yeah and i think as you mentioned uh, lewis burke's study because she did that three-week study with 50 kilometer race walkers yes and i want to say the folks doing the high fat on that they were actually putting up pretty high numbers by that three week point in time. So the interesting thing about that is I always look at that from a performance standpoint, I'm like, I'm not really sure what that study would indicate because I'll tell you this, it's pretty common knowledge within endurance sport and sport in general that you don't overhaul your diet three weeks before your peak performance. If I were an Olympic athlete and I had the five kilometers in the Olympics three weeks from now, the last thing I would be doing is flipping my diet completely on its head. So. I'd have to look at that study to see more nuance out of it. My guess is it's saying what it it was intended to say, and a lot of people just maybe extrapolate out from it more than what it's intended to say or do.
1: Yeah, to give context to the listeners, I think Volk and Finney are... Kind of the key thought leaders around in in academia around ketogenic performance. And I would say that Louise Burke's, I think the NOVA study was like, hey, maybe it might increase fat oxidation, but it doesn't increase actual end performance. And, And I think the counter argument, I think the point that you bring up as a student, which is that you're not expecting to match your previous. PRs if you change your diet completely and try to shift your metabolic state completely from glycolysis driven to ketosis or lipolysis driven in three weeks. Mm -hmm. Even if we do look down the
0: road and say like, okay, this person's following that for a year or two, I would suspect a lot of them would have the same experience I did, which is the strict keto isn't necessarily ideal for peak performance, but that doesn't mean that you have to go right back to high carb. Yep. You, know, you can kind of do something more similar to what I do or that periodized kind of carb sneak in there. And that's where I'm interested in. I'm interested in kind of that, that middle ground between the two. And hopefully some funding goes towards some of that stuff down the road and we see some more research and some studies done. But either way, you can do your own N equals one experiment if you're interested enough.
1: Someone's got to like make some sort of catchy name for that. Because I think what you're describing is similar to what I implement personally, which is I would say that I have a low carb ketogenic base, but I will add in carbohydrates ahead of certain types of high intensity weightlifting workouts. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, if I'm doing like a, you know, a long bike ride for an afternoon, I will use carbs if I want to be maximizing performance, but I also do some fasted training as well and just blend it together.
0: Yeah. You know, and it's interesting too, because I think when you look at what I'm eating, I hardly see it as restrictive because of the knock on like a strict ketogenic diet, or if you're going to be like a zero carb diet is people will look at that them like, well I can't sustain that and then the numbers probably reflect that too in terms of people starting and stopping or falling out and feeling like they failed versus you know staying the course and it's like when you kind of get into that high fat low carb where you're flipping it on its head but not going quite as low as those therapeutic ketogenic levels would be at you have a little more wiggle room there so it's, it doesn't feel as restrictive. And I always get a little bit of a kick out of that because every once in a while someone will say like, well, I could never do it because I wouldn't be able to eat this anymore. And they'll send me a picture of like this meal. And I look at the meal. and It's like, you know, I I could actually eat that. Like it wouldn't ruin my plan. I would just be maybe a little more strategic about when and where I ate it. Exactly. (laughs) So it's all uh, individualized anyway, at that point. Anyway, it's like people assuming that other people are going to foods that they're eating versus the ones that they are.
1: (laughs) Exactly. One thing that I think is interesting that I would say is a popular sub-thread from the low-carb community is carnivore. I know that you do a podcast with Sean Baker, who's been on our program, who's quite the carnivore proponent. Curious how heavily animal-based are you? How do you sort of take all the recent N equals one anecdotal stories from carnivore?
0: I think it's really, really fascinating, especially when you start to look into where it's being more heavily researched versus just the anecdotes we see on Twitter and we see online. Because I think the first thought to most people is just, well, this is just a bunch of crazy people that decided for whatever reason, maybe it's because they got mad enough at the vocal vegans that they're going to go completely opposite. Yeah. <laughs> Versus, like, there's a group out of Hungary, the Paleo Medicina group. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but it's a guy, Dr. Saba Tooth and Dr. Zofia Clemens. And they're doing a ton of fascinating research with an animal based diet to help people with like just really, really bad metabolic syndrome and digestive issues. They get way more technical, but for simplicity's sake, it's like basically leaky gut where people like they've destroyed their digestive system for whatever reason. And they're seeing some some just really mind boggling results when they're putting people on this like 82%, 18% fat to protein ratio, essentially zero carb diet on animal based products. And it's pretty regimental. But these are people who are like, You know, they're they're suffering. It's amazing what people are willing to do when they're up against it to that level.
1: It's like Michaela Peterson, autoimmune issues. You're depressed Mm and want to kill yourself level and you try anything.
0: Yeah. One thing I find interesting, too, is just when we look at some of this stuff, you can kind of look at like, well, what am I eating and what am I trying to do and where am I at? Where do I want to be? And I don't think it always has to be like, this is what I'm going to do now. I'm going to do it forever. I think with a lot of the carnivore movement, what we'll see is we'll see people kind of get healthy doing it almost as like a real strict hard reset or a real strict elimination diet. And as they do kind of start to heal, they give their body a chance to kind of recover, they'll start reintroducing some things. And I find it really interesting when you look at some of the ways like indigenous tribes prepare their food, whether they're closer to plant-based or closer to animal product-based or somewhere in between. What we don't see is we don't see these tribes eating things in the state that we see them in the grocery store. One guy who said it really well. I think it was Ben Greenfield said it's smart food. It's like you can look at something like bread. It's like well, you can have you know white Wonder Bread or you can have like a really well formulated sourdough bread, and the way your body reacts to that, and the way we break down some of this stuff is different depending on how we prepare it so sometimes going back to some of these ancient traditions and looking at what they're doing to prepare the foods or to liberate the foods to make them more digestible for humans is really interesting to me so I think we'll see some of that too where people start reintroducing some things and maybe a more traditional sense that they don't stick to like a strict carnivore diet but I think we're, we're learning a lot from that group and I think it's smart to keep an open eye mind about it and ultimately I think it also opens up the conversation to the, of where are we getting these products from? And how are we raising these animals? And I like to think that it will open up a conversation towards, if we're going to be relying on meat as a staple in, in human nutrition. Well, let's look at what the way to do that would be that's regenerative, or that's holistic, mm-hmm. you know, versus something that's maybe detrimental, introducing people to that so that people are a little closer to their food systems versus kind of One hundred percent is separated from them.
1: Yep. Have you personally implemented one hundred percent carnivore? So, for background, Mm -hmm. I did a couple cycles of four to six weeks of carnivore diet, and I thought it was quite nice, quite palatable, and that has informed my day to day to have to not be afraid of having higher meat content as part of my overall meals. Yeah. But but I Mm -hmm. think just on a practical basis, it's somewhat hard to eat only meat twenty four seven. But I think that. Over the last year, year and a half, I think that really opened my eyes around, hey, one shouldn't be immediately scared of all the uh, headlines around red meat and associations with cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. And and that caused me to like really dive into the research and the studies and exactly what was there and what might be potentially confounding conclusions.
0: I think that's probably the point that I'm most interested about it too is so some of it we just don't know, right? Like we don't know necessarily outside of anecdotes what happens when you go on an all meat diet or a meat heavy diet. So when we get more people kind of doing this and reporting their anecdotes, it kind of forces us into the next step. Now we're going to start having case studies and then we start looking into the epidemiology of it and then we eventually start to get some random controlled trials and really look in to see what's going on and kind of find out what is working and what's not working. The one cool way to look at some of this stuff in general is it seems like there's always gonna be a pro and a con to what you're eating. So you can look at someone who has a history of a certain disease in their family or they've had a disease or something like that. For them, you know, they may wanna turn to a different type of nutritional plan because they wanna mitigate the risks for that particular thing that they're highest at risk for they may have a very low risk of some other thing. So they can maybe incorporate things that would potentially increase the risk of that because they're just balancing kind of that equation a little bit. Right. And when we're looking at things like that, I think it behooves us to have options as opposed to here's one definitive mono way of eating that the government's going to say is the right way to do it. And if you're doing anything different, you're risking yourself. Like well, Give us five options <laughs> so we can kind of pick and choose and, and find what's going to work for us from both a sustainability standpoint that we can stick to and also to mitigate whatever things that are, are potentially risk factors for, for us as individuals.
1: It's just obvious if you look at it from a genetics and base, baseline perspective and what your goals are, right? Like Zach Bitter might has this genetic baseline and he wants to win 100 mile races. You should have a thoughtful diet and an exercise protocol to help optimize that. For me, mm-hmm. if I'm trying to optimize cognition and not get Alzheimer's and not get disease and have this genetic baseline, it probably se- seems sensible that you have a, maybe a little different nutritional protocol for that. And I think it's silly to say that, hey, every human needs the same diet, even though we have uh, quite a bit of genetic diversity and we all have different individual goals that we want to optimize for. Again, you know, trying to win a gold medal that activity is probably pretty orthogonal to what you'd want to do to prevent disease or try to live, you know, as long as possible, right? Mm -hmm. You're just just trying to optimize for very different endpoints.
0: Yeah. Nowadays too, when we have availability to be able to kind of see and follow basically anyone who's willing to put it out there now, you like, you see these different goals and these different areas of focus. So it's, there's no shortage of kind of seeing where those differences kind of come into play
1: yeah so one topic that I want to move towards is the mental discipline, the mental game of what it takes to do these hundred mile ultra endurance events and Again, I'm a very very amateur dabbles in these types of endurance events i The longest run I did was a thirty mile run, and the initial entry to that is pretty stark for most modern people where we're very much used to having some stimulus from our phones or devices every 10 minutes and if you are properly training for these longer runs and doing a hundred mile run you are by yourself for like 12 hours do you focus on anything do you just let your mind drift what is it or hour five into an effort like this
0: when I talk about endurance sport in general I think the training both physical and then the mental components are all there no matter what distance you're doing It just comes down to kind of where you place them and where you focus more emphasis or less emphasis. So as you start pushing up in distance into some of these longer events, like the 100 mile stuff, I think that mental component just gets a little different, where instead of kind of being able to force yourself through an acute pain for a relatively short period of time, like you'd get in like a five kilometer race. Now you're asking yourself to push yourself through the monotony and the self-doubt and the boredom and the kind of gradual fatigue and the like slow aching pain type of a thing. Yeah, And it's almost like you have this mental reservoir that you're pulling from. So you need to be careful about when and how you're doing that. And you definitely want to go into a race with that reservoir as full as possible, because that's just going to give you more potential to kind of push through some of those low points or those negative thought processes. So you kind of highlighted it perfectly when you said like the four or five hour part, because, you know, my last particular event, that's a point in the race where I've been out there long enough where I'm starting to feel it a bit physically. Yeah. I mean, five hours of running is five hours of running, no matter how you skin it. I mean,
1: most people can't even stand for five hours, right? <laughs> like, just think about that. Like When's the last time like most of us have stood on our feet for five hours straight? You get tired <laughs> from just standing and it's like, OK, you're covering some big ground.
0: Yeah. So like, you know, you get to that point and then if you think about it, then too, you're like, okay, I'm feeling a little bit worn down. I feel like I've been running for five hours, but I got six or seven hours to go. So that's difficult in the sense that it's really tough to start wrapping your head around what you have left to do. So I think that point in the race, you do find yourself, or at least I do find myself having to kind of fight back a little more doubt and then as I kind of get closer and closer to something can kind of wrap my head around, it gets you get a little more optimistic, it's it maybe a little easier, assuming the day's going well, if the day's kind of coming off the rails, then sometimes the further in you get, the harder it gets, because then you're just questioning why you're out there on a yeah. constant basis. So for me, like when I was at mid 40s, I was kind of at that point where I looked at the unique thing about the event I just did is it's on a 443 meter loop. So I can see my split basically less than, more frequent than every two minutes. So to go back to what I said before about that, that mental energy or that reservoir, if I choose to watch my splits every lap, I'm probably going to exhaust my mental reservoir a little too quick. So some of it's just doing like little mental tricks where I'm acutely aware of my pace and effort enough where if I give myself like a few laps in the beginning to kind of dial in the pace range I want, I can kind of just cruise for a while and avoid looking at that and just get a rhythm going and let my mind wander a little bit, but I'm spot checking. Because if I notice I'm drifting out either too fast or too slow, I'm going to want to kind of recalculate or recalibrate that intensity and that effort to make sure I'm still in that range. And I get to I got to that point around the mid 40s where I had been slipping out of my pace a little bit, going a little too slow. You know, the thoughts start crossing your mind like, well, maybe I just don't have a PR or a world record performance in me today maybe I should just kind of settle down and take what I can get. You start thinking like, well, 11 hours and 50 minutes would still be a solid day. And then I can be fresher for a race down the road. And you almost have to say like, well, wait a second. Think of how many hours and how many uh, training sessions you went through to get ready for this particular opportunity. Don't let it slip away right now. Let's kind of start to zoom in a little bit and say, okay, I'm in the next two miles. I'm going to get back into the pace range. I'm going to see how I feel at two miles before I make any rational decisions. And then you can kind of start to slowly turn things back from that negative self-talk to that positive self-talk. So I got myself into kind of that position where I was back into my split range. And then once I was in that, it became a little easier to say, okay, now let's just do a few more miles. And you start getting closer and closer to that point that I was explaining before where, okay, now I'm far enough into this race where I'm within the distance that I did my longest long run, or I'm within the distance where my average of my long runs ended up at. And then you can kind of shift your mind from, I'm out here trying to run 100 miles as fast as I can, to, I'm just doing something I do on a weekly basis now. It's that momentum, spiraling that momentum back positive. And then for me on this particular event, I'm pulling from past experiences too. Like there's things I did at this last race that I wouldn't have been able to do earlier in my career just because I didn't have the point of experience. And one of the biggest ones was I made an attempt at the world record back in 2015 at an event called the Desert Salsas Track Invitational. And I ended up breaking the American record that day. But at mile 80, I was on pace to break the world record. And I remember the race director told me, like, well, these are the splits you need to run at the last 20 miles mm-hmm. in order to break the record. And I just couldn't do it. So when I think back of how many days between then and that race that crossed my mind where I thought, you know, I had this opportunity. I was at mile 80. I could have done it, but I didn't. When you think about that enough times, when you get yourself back into that position, you kind of go to a mode of like, okay, I'm not going to let that happen again. And you learn from that experience. You pull from that. I wouldn't say it was a failure at the time. I broke an American record. I had my fastest 100 mile time ever. So there was definitely positives to pull from that event too. But there was also things I could point to that like, well, there's a spot there that I need to make an improvement. That's where I can grow in the sport. So then, you know, getting yourself to where I was at at this last race. I'm just thinking about that, you know, a lot and just thinking about, OK, how much time did I spend getting ready for this? How much time did I spend learning from my parents? previous stuff you you just the incentive to take advantage of the opportunity i think gets greater and that helps out when you can spin it in a positive direction
1: i wouldn't say that the 2015 race was a failure per se but it sounds like you took some of that learning experiences that sense of wanting that you thought you could have done better as a way to push yourself and i think it just reflects on a conversation i had with pete jacobs who was a ironman Mm. world champion who's now shifting more towards a carnivore diet and coming back on on his comeback And he had an interesting comment around having a mantra of love, positivity. And it sounds like for you, you've pulled on like different parts of sort of negative and positive energy through different aspects of the race. So that's like part one of the question. some some clarification on is that kind of the way you think about it? There's sometimes you want to have like, okay, I don't want to fail. Like this person said a mean thing to me, <laughs> I want to prove that person wrong, screw that person. And then like, sometimes you think about like all the positive things. That was kind of part one of the question. And then part two was, this is something that I've come to think about more is that, you know, I'm just curious in terms of your world record breaking performance, would you describe yourself in a state of flow? Would you almost compare yourself to being in a meditative trance or state where if you had a brain scan of you during that race, would that brain scan look like a Zen monk who is just you know, meditating? <laughs> and I think that's like an interesting thing I wanna just articulate, maybe plant in the ground to talk about after talking about part one. It's
0: a balance for sure. You wanna go in with gratitude and you wanna go in there being appreciative of the opportunity you have as opposed to being fueled purely by hate or purely by anger. But that's something you can leverage.
1: But hate's powerful, right? It's like the dark side it of is. the forest, light side of the forest. I mean, I think yeah. I've definitely there's some workouts from like, yo, like I, this
0: mm-hmm. person
1: made fun of me. I want to like put that yeah. a- aggression into the exercise or into the event.
0: Yeah, you think about stuff like that. If you use it at the right time, I think it can be very powerful. From my experience, I think if you start the race thinking like that, it gets a little difficult but if you kind of keep it in your back pocket and lean on it a bit when you get into the later stages, it gets a little more useful, at least for me anyway. And I wouldn't say I get like a whole lot of negativity thrown my way for any reason, really. But, you know, you still see it. I mean, people like to think and people like to like speculate. And I think that's one of the fun things about sports is like people wondering about what if or like, you know, you know that sort of thing. So, like, you know, when you have a race like I did in 2015. And then you make another attempt later, and that one doesn't work out well. You do see sometimes people saying things like, well, maybe 11.40 is the fastest he can go. Or maybe if he would have had a little more carbohydrate, he would have run 20. 20." Yeah. (laughs) So that sort of stuff. But it's not necessarily a thing where it's trying to push someone else back as much as it is. Thanks for that little bit of fuel, I'm going to use that. And most of the time, I think it's harmless. But you hit it on the head there where I think when you can have that duality of being grateful to be there, being positive, trusting your process, believing you can do it, and then also thinking like, okay, I'm going to prove something here today.
1: Yeah, that generally rings true to me in terms of keeping it positive and using some of the hate fuel in the pocket when you need some extra aggression. But I would agree with you. I think if you start out angry, I just don't think you can sustain being angry for 12 hours. 12
0: hours is a long time to be mad. (laughs) It's a long time.
1: And then the second point, I think, one of the things I've appreciated with endurance activities is that's I think it's a more effective version of meditation, mm-hmm. and I think it's increasing popularity that you know meditation mindfulness is like a big buzzword, but I think most of it is performance. I think it's like I, like if you're just sitting in a room for five ten minutes, I don't think it's enough. I don't I don't think it's true meditation, or what the goal of meditation is, which is kind of a clarity of focus or, or clarity of mind, and I feel like with endurance sport as the medium. It almost forces you to have that clarity of mind. So I think it's like a much more efficient vehicle for me to get sort of mental clarity and mindfulness. I'm just curious in terms of, I think, especially for endurance sport, I feel like just as much mental as it is physical or at least mental, the mental component is very, very strong. I mean, do you meditate? How do you think about building up your mental discipline, your mental reservoir? Do you think about it in terms of like reaching the sort of enlightened zen state that, you know, you see like monks talking about?
0: I think you're right. It's one of those things where it's hard to quantify. And it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, I do wish some machine hooked up to me during that race. You could see exactly what was going on. Yeah, But you, you definitely get into these states. And I actually practice them when I'm doing my long runs. And it's like a visualization type of a practice as much as it is anything where, let's like say I have a 30-mile training run scheduled for Sunday and I'm preparing for a hundred mile race, I go out there and I put myself in my mind at mile 70 and be like, well, what am I going to do at mile 70 if I'm given this opportunity? So you've almost done a dress rehearsal in your head and you kind of get these experiences that you can pull from during the race. So then when you get to the race, it's less about kind of learning it on the fly and you can kind of go into that state of flow and just kind of reflect back on like okay, I know what to do here and then just center that and just let it kind of happen as opposed to try to force it. And it's one of those things where I think it almost makes describing the event difficult because you get into those states and you don't really remember being in them. So in the back of your mind, you know, well, I was definitely thinking about something, but I just can't recall it anymore. And then someone asks, well, what do you think about the whole time? And you're like, I don't know. (laughs) Because you think of some things you do remember and you're like, well, was I thinking about that the whole time or was there stuff I forgot?
1: Yeah. When I just started out, it's like, yeah, what do you think about? It's like such a long time. You're by yourself. But then like, as you get more experience, like, I don't know, like, I'm just like, you kind of get into these flow states where you just, you just Uh done it. And it's like, I'm not trying to remember. Maybe it sounds like super woo woo to people that haven't done endurance activities, but I think. For people to have experienced or tapped into some levels of this, it's a very real mental state that you are in. That I, if I think more people should try to tap into, I think it's an interesting human experience.
0: Yeah, you know, when when people ask me the question, like, what do you think about during it, my mind always kind of goofily goes back to the, the movie Office Space when they ask the guy in there, Peter. They're like, they're like, so what do you want to do with the rest of your life? nothing. <laughs> it's like, what do you think about during a hundred mile race or what do you want to think about? Nothing. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> so it is kind of interesting. Like you get into that state of mind where you're just out there and you know, you're moving, but you're not necessarily feeling everything you think you should be feeling. You get to like, and it's weird because like you come in and out of it, you're never in it the whole time. Yep. So mile 60, I might be very aware of what I'm doing. I might be like thinking very much and I'm feeling like okay my left leg hurts a little bit you know my right quads a little more sore than my left one am I drinking enough do I feel thirsty or just thinking about a lot of stuff and then all of a sudden like you get into one of those states and all of a sudden you're there and then when you come out of it you wonder like well why did that last eight miles did my ankle not hurt and my right quad not hurt more than my left one I didn't feel as thirsty like so you know you're kind of in it but you don't always know about it until you're out of it.
1: I think that's like a key thing that at least it's r- refreshing for me to hear, given that it's hard to maintain it. Even like the world's best person at doing this is not holding perfect Zen state for 12 hours straight, which mm-hmm. is probably refreshing for amateurs <sighs> like myself. Like, okay, like no one is God mode level mental 24 seven on. Uh-huh. I mean, is that something that you aspire to or do you think that's approachable? is that trainable? Or do you think that that's just human nature that there's going to be just a little bit of mental variation as you're doing something that's over such an extended period of time?
0: Yeah, I think maybe there's a process to improve it or to like, maximize it, I guess, is maybe a better way to say it. But I also think there's sometimes where sometimes it just works better than others. And those are probably the times where you're going to outperform. I mean, you think about it, like in other sports, too, like in basketball, you have someone who's just on one night and they're just hitting every shot they take they get in that flow state and then there's another night where they want to be in that same position every night but then there's a night where they're not and they're missing every shot they take so i think there is an element of just kind of having it the right place at the right time to a degree but i think you improve your chances of having that happen if you kind of do those dress rehearsals that i talked about in training where you kind of know where you should be and how you should be doing at certain points and you've processed it in your brain even though you haven't done it yet over and over again during
1: practice. That rings true to how I think about it as well. It's too complicated to understand exactly what triggers a flow state or not, but to maximize the probability of consistently doing it, you probably just need to do the event again and again and again, and just have a template in your mind of autopiloting. And it's Mm -hmm. like a very comfortable state for you. Awesome. What's next? I mean, okay, maybe you haven't thought about what's next, but but knowing <laughs> folks like yourself and and myself, once you get the one thing down, you're probably thinking about, all right, relax for a little bit and what's the next world record? What's the next thing I can do? Is there something in your mind that's uh, exciting? Post a couple world records here?
0: Yeah, so the irony of the whole situation is when I started the training block, for the second half of the year, I typically divide my year into two halves, at least now that I'm out in Phoenix and I have access to like such a variety of different trains to train in. One half of the year, I'll do more trail climbing, descending type stuff. The other half, I'll do more flat, fast stuff. And the first half of the year, I was training for the San Diego 100. So when I finished that, I was like, okay, I'm going to start doing my buildup for the flat part of the year. And I picked a race that met my timeline really nicely, which is the Spartathlon in Greece. Then after I had already kind of put all those pieces together, I found out about the event I had just done, and it was like such a unique opportunity, I didn't want to pass up on it. So I thought going into the training block, worst case scenario is I can just use this as kind of a tune-up run for the Spartathlon. As I got through the training, I, the flat fitness came back so fast and I had such good workouts that I was, my mindset going into that race I just did was, if I feel good, I'm going to go for it. If not, then it is what it is and I'll, I'll be ready for a Spartathlon at least. So things went as well as I could have expected, but I still have this race on the schedule to do over in Greece, which I'm actually leaving for this Saturday. It's in about uh, or a little more than a week. So it's a 153 mile race, goes from Athens to Sparta on kind of a rolling hill paved and gravel road. So we'll see how that goes. Five weeks recovery is a little tight for something like that, in my opinion. But the Spartathlon is also a race I feel like I'm probably going to do a couple, if not a few times in my career. So if nothing else, I'll at least be able to kind of get the do a repetition of the experience out there and kind of figure out what the course is really like and put together a more solid, more prepared plan for the next time out there. But with that said, I do feel pretty well recovered. I'm going to lean on some fitness that I had before the last race, hopefully, and and
1: see what happens. Awesome. Yeah, good luck next week. And then one of the questions I always like to wrap these conversations up with, and I'm curious to get your take, because I think you have so many different interests here, is that what is the, some of the most interesting scientific questions that you'd like to answer? If you had infinite resources, guinea pig populations, whether you want to look at ultra marathoners or just average Americans, you can put them in a, metabolic ward, you can make them do a thousand miles runs. What would you study? What would you structure it? Maybe you have a couple of questions.
0: I would want maybe a more specific, like what would be the, like the primary nutrition plan for the varying distances, as opposed to like, well, this is what works for endurance, or this is what works for powerlifting. This is what works for sprinting. Can we figure out what's the difference between the 50 kilometer and the hundred mile, or then the six day or something like that which i think opens up a ton of windows yeah
1: they're pretty damn different things yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a 5k is like a freaking sprint to you but at this point right like it versus like a hundred miler I and mean, that's just a completely different thing it's like a one rep max deadlift versus like okay i do like a hundred deadlifts in a row and it's like those yeah. are very different types of, <laughs> of, of performances
0: yeah completely different systems so yeah. it is interesting
1: Okay, so you'd want to get more fidelity and nuance around the different lengths of, of, of race, right? I think right now, mm-hmm. I, I would agree with you. It's just kind of like sprint and then long distance and long distance is anything from like 5K to like 500 miles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much. And then good luck with the Spartathlon next week uh, or a couple weeks. Really good conversation. And excited to follow your progress as you keep exploring the limits of uh, human performance here.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Cheers. Take care.
1: If you're interested to learn more about HVMN, visit www.hvmn.com pod. Thank you for tuning in.